Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see so many of you uh, gathering online. So whether this is, uh, you're a Grace Pointer from way back, you've been forever a Grace Pointer, or whether this is your first time engaging with us, we're really, really glad you're here. Um, really, really sad that you're not here in the room with us, but um, so grateful for the folks who were able to pull this off so that we could be in your living room or kitchen or wherever you happen to be uh, this morning. So today we're actually beginning a brand new series that's gonna lead us up through, um, through the spring for sure. Uh, and we're going to be looking at words. Um, I'm kind of a word nerd uh, and have been for a very long time. I was um, actually in uh, my undergrad life, I was an English major. And uh, so I was super interested in words and how they work and how that when words get together, they create this thing called language. Um, but words have this ability to shape reality. Right? Words have the ability to inspire us. Somebody can get up and give a speech that makes us believe anything is possible and that calls us to our best versions of ourselves and actually makes us believe that we can actually become those people. Words have that potential. They can um, lift you up. They can breathe life into you. And words also have the opposite potential. Words can wound us. They can harm us. They can make us believe that nothing is possible. They can make us believe that we have no worth. So words have this heaviness and significance to them. And of course, often we throw them around in all sorts of ways, but when we get down to it, words really matter. And when you put words together, you end up with language. And language is a really interesting thing. Have you ever been in a situation where you were maybe in a group of people or you're out somewhere in a group of people and they could all speak a different language than you and they were having a conversation and you were just sort of existing around it and you had no idea what they were saying, but they would like talk and then laugh and you were pretty sure they were making fun of you even though you had no idea. Uh, it, lots of things have language. People who like sports typically exist and have a whole other language they speak when they're talking about sports or with cooking or technology. When people get together and talk about technology, I generally feel like they're speaking another language often that I just don't understand. One of the places I see this happen most is at like a Starbucks. Have you ever gone into Starbucks and you can always tell when somebody's in there for the very first time because they start ordering and they're like, I want a medium. And then they start saying, and, and somebody like who's been in there a lot will go in and say, you know, I'd like a triple grande, non-fat, with whip, cinnamon dolce latte, extra hot, right? Like that's a whole other set of language. And somebody who doesn't know that language hears you speaking it and they're like, what is going on? Language kind of creates an us. People who know these terms and know how they work and know how to use them and arrange them in phrases that then communicate something. And of course, when we talk about religion, all religious traditions have a language. They have a set of words, a set of principles, a set of values, a set of doctrines even that communicate what that religion is all about. And so this series we're starting today, which is we're just calling RE, R-E colon, uh, reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith, what we're gonna be spending some time on over these next weeks is the Christian tradition, the language of the Christian tradition. And when I say that, I don't mean the original language of the Christian tradition. So we're not talking about Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, although that's super fascinating and interesting stuff, and, and knowing those things help us understand better what's going on in the Bible, for example. But I wanna talk about those words. I wanna talk about the words and the uh, theology and the beliefs that's, that have centered the Christian tradition for a long, long time. Words like salvation, this is what we're gonna start with next week. Words like sin, words like atonement, words like blessing, um, things like the, in, the end times, which is the thing a lot of people are talking about this week. Um, we're gonna be jumping into all of those things. But today, what I wanna begin with is just the why, the how, and the what. So today, I just wanna begin with an introduction of, about where we're going and the things that are gonna guide us 
on this journey. So let's just begin with the why. Why this series and why these words? Why does it matter? Why are we trying to get together and talk about and reimagine, reframe, and reclaim words that maybe some people think don't even really have validity anymore? Why would we not just find a whole set of words that are, just create a whole new set of words? Why do these words matter? Um, Because for lots of us, as we've gone through our own faith shift and we've gone through an unraveling and we're not really sure, we, we, don't, we know we don't believe what we used to believe and we're trying to sort out what that means for us now and what do we do with these words? What does salvation mean after you've unraveled your faith? What does sin mean, right? These things, we don't know what to do with them and so what we often do with them is we just put them on the shelf and do nothing with them, right? We just leave them over there and when somebody brings it up, we'll try to figure out something to say. I have to, I have to be honest with you, as I was going through my own sort of faith deconstruction over the years. I was doing it as a pastor. And there were two times of the year that I dreaded more than anything else, Christmas and Easter. By the way, if you're a pastor and you dread Christmas and Easter, you are really in trouble. Because that's the two times of year when everybody shows up and everybody wants to hear a good sermon on the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And there was a period of time when I dreaded those times coming around the calendar because I had this whole set of vocabulary that I no longer defined in some of the same ways that, that I had or that people expected me to, and I didn't know what to do with them. So what do we do? Do we just leave them on the shelf. And then there's the whole thing that there are people who are right now unraveling their faith and they're looking for something. They're looking for a meaningful alternative to sort of the the fundamentalist or the conservative Christian upbringing. They're looking for an alternative. And these words are part of the things they're looking to have redefined. These words matter to them. They have meaning to them. They just don't mean what they used to mean. So they're looking for a meaningful alternative. And I'll be honest with you, I think these words still have power. I think the concept of salvation still has power. I think in the world we live in where we see all sorts of things unraveling all the time, we need to have a robust understanding of what do we mean by the word sin through a progressive Christian lens. I think they still have power. Maybe one of the ways we would say this back back where I'm from is that dog will still hunt, right? There's more left for these words to do. And in their original state that they've been in for maybe 500 years or so, these words are full full of all sorts of problems and they're fraught and they're difficult. But what if we were to rethink them? I I like to think of it as like we're archaeologists. I think that would be, ever since I watched Indiana Jones for the first time, I really wanted to get into archaeology. And I'm going to say I don't think most archaeologists have that sort of experience that Indiana Jones had. But I think we're like archaeologists when it comes to these words. What does an archaeologist do? They go to a place and they start layer by layer and they're going down, removing dirt, removing debris, and they're exposing what's there at the core. And I think that's our work and that's our mission here at Grace Point. When we engage these words, we're not trying to get rid of them and destroy them, exactly the opposite. We're trying to remove debris and remove what time has done to them and what theology is shifting over different places and contexts has done to them. And we're trying to say, what could these words mean today? How, How can we incorporate and include these words in whatever it means to be a progressive Christian in the 21st century? So over these next weeks, just imagine us in uh, a a ruin of an ancient city and we're removing all the dirt and all the dust and all the debris and we're looking to expose something that has been there all along but we've just never had eyes to see or ears to hear. So why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this series? Because I believe these words matter and I believe they matter for lots and lots of people and we have to begin to give people an alternative, an alternative way of defining, an alternative way of seeing these words in this language. How will we approach these words? Because right, how matters. 
Um, the way you go about doing something often shapes what you end up doing. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we're going to approach these words over these next several weeks together. And the first thing is we're going to approach these words contextually. What I mean by that is we're going to approach these words as they existed, as far as we can tell, in their original environment. So we're not going to define, try to define words based on, the, in the beginning, the way we see that. We're going to try to say, how did the earliest authors, how did the earliest communities that gathered around the Jesus story, how did they understand these terms? What did that mean for them? How did it affect their lives? How did it affect the way they wrote? How did it affect the way they talked? And also, we're going to talk about, in, in context, we're going to realize that everybody had a worldview, and that the people who gave us these words, they didn't create them in a vacuum. They created them in the experience of life they had, living in the first century world under the power and rule of the Roman Empire, the largest military and economic superpower the world had seen up to that point. And it absolutely shaped their experience. And they also were shaped by all sorts of things that they didn't even know about, things like patriarchy that existed in the ancient world and unfortunately exists today and how that uh, idea uh, was attached to these words in, in some ways and actually uh, derailed them in what they could mean. So we're gonna try to approach it Contextually, we're also going to approach it historically. And what I mean by that is we have 2,000 or so years of Christian tradition. How has the Christian tradition approached these words over that time? And here's the thing. The, what we kind of always are taught is that there's been this one way of seeing it that's been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And that's just not true. If you read early church history, they fought and fought and fought over these. And sometimes the winning opinion wasn't because they had a good theological argument. It's because the emperor agreed and gave them an army. Right, So it isn't like there's been this pure handing down of the meaning of these words. It's, it's been an interesting evolution over 2,000 years. And now some of the ways we talk about things were some of the ways the early church didn't talk about them. And some of the ways they talked about things, we don't talk about them that way. And so what do we do with that? How do we want to situate ourselves historically in the larger story? How do we want to understand ourselves in relationship to our spiritual ancestors? Uh, we're also going to approach them critically. And when you hear that word critic, critique, it sounds like a negative, right? So um, often like a, a movie critic is telling you why this movie is bad, or a, a food critic is telling you why this food is bad, or, or maybe why it's good, but usually why, why it's bad. And that's not what we're talking about. When I say critically, I mean, one of the things we value here at Grace Point is that we can bring our head and our heart to the experience of faith. Right, so yes, we feel deeply and we have emotion and we try to live from here, but also at the very same time, we have brains, we were given brains, and we were given reason, and we were given logic. So we're gonna bring that to these words. What might these words mean if we bring all of our knowledge, experience, re all that stuff together? So we're gonna approach them critically, and we're gonna ask questions about them. And we're gonna ask, did our ancestors give us the best way of seeing this, or did they give us a way of seeing this that was uh, situated in their context, and that ultimately was influenced by their world and things that they didn't know about? Right? There were things they didn't know about. There were things like germs that existed that they had no idea. Uh, and, and so their explanations tended to be, gosh, this is a punishment of God and not they have a, they have a virus. Right? So this understanding of where they were and in so many ways how that limited them from, of course, from being able to articulate something that we would articulate because they hadn't had the benefit of 2,000 years. They hadn't had the benefit of technology. They hadn't had the benefit of this entire experience um, that's happened for us that we uh, have the benefit of. And then finally, we're gonna approach these words as if they are all unfinished. 
I think one of the problems we run into is, is we articulate something and we think this is the full and final version. And this is why I'm tended, tending toward an organic understanding of faith unraveling, um, which we talked about a few weeks ago, where instead of talking about deconstruct and reconstruct, we talk about this idea of in a garden, what do you do? You churn it all up. You take last year's leftovers and you use them as nutrients for next year's produce. And so instead of seeing, because reconstruct, reconstruction has this sort of, well, I, I blew something up and I got rid of it, and now I've built something else in its place, as if that's the final form. The reality is, is that we're always going to be unfinished. This is just true of language. Um, think about this. There is such a thing as Old English. There's such a thing as Middle English. And then there's Elizabethan English. And then there's the English we speak in the States. And then there's the British version, which is like original, not ours. And then there's an Australian version. Like wherever you go where this language that many of us speak is spoken, it is different. Words mean different things. Um, words are used differently. Sometimes they use words that we would never use for a thing. Like take, take soccer and football, right? Everybody else in the world calls soccer football, but stubborn Americans, we're going to call it soccer because we've got another kind of football, right? And so there's this, this understanding that language is always in a state of flux and transformation, and that some of the ways our ancestors talked about things may not work for us. Not because they were bad, not because they were dumb, but because time has changed, language has changed, and our understanding has changed. Our understanding of God has changed, which is something that happens throughout the Bible. If you engage the Bible, you'll find people at different spots on their understanding of what the word God means and what that reality called God is like. It's all throughout the Bible. And we also have been confronted with all sorts of learning and knowledge that's changed the way we think about what it means to be human and the way we think about other human beings and the way we think about human sexuality and the way we think about all this other stuff that we take for granted all the time. It has been an evolution. It's been a journey. It's always been in a state of flux. And then what? What is the ultimate goal here? Is that we'll all go out in our everyday lives and just start talking about sin more and talk about salvation more and maybe use blessed in the right context? Is that the ultimate goal? Um, not, not really. I, I think there are three things I'm after in this series. One is I hope to disarm some of this language. Um, I, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word repent, I don't automatically think this is a good thing. It's usually on some angry street preacher's sign as he's marching up and down the street proclaiming that everybody who's listed on his sign is somehow bad and going to hell. But in its original context, the word repent actually means something quite beautiful, which I'm not gonna talk about right now because that's coming up in a few weeks. But this reality that the language of faith needs to be disarmed because for lots and lots of people, the Christian tradition has been used as a club and that when we talk about, when people say good news, often the, the Christian story that gets talked about broadly isn't really good news, except for a few people who happen to believe the right thing. What would it look like to disarm this language and, and to give us a deeper understanding? What, what if we disarmed it from being something that we're using to judge and club and abuse other people? And what if we actually create, created in its place a, a kind of healing language? And I think that's the other thing I wanna do, is I wanna figure out a way to bring healing to all the wounds that this language has created. Now, I know that's a big task and we probably won't get that done in this series, but I hope we can begin that conversation. What does it look like to put these words in a context? What does it look like to frame sin in such a way that actually leads to healing and not shame? What does it look like to frame sin so that we deal with the issue and all the stuff around it, but at the same time, it's something that is regenerative and helpful and healing and it produces actual human transformation? I think for a long, long time, we've just, 
as, as a tradition, the Christian tradition is just wanted to inspire guilt and then behavior modification, which is not transformation and which is not healing. So what would it look like for us to approach these words, this language, the language of our faith? What if we were to approach it in a way that disarms it from all the ways it's been used destructively and turns it into a healing balm that gets placed on the wounds that has been created from a misuse of these words for so many years? And then lastly, my goal is that we reclaim these, these words. I think one of the, the things we've done in the progressive Christian world is we've sort of ceded too much territory. Essentially, we've said to people who are more hardcore than us, who are a little bit more, who are a lot more fundamentalist, who have maybe armed these words. And we've just sort of said, you can have them, we'll create something else. And yet we're, that disconnects us from the tradition. It disconnects us from the Bible. And when people, often people will say, well, you progressive Christians don't care about the Bible, which is just not true. And they'll say, oh, these words don't mean anything. You don't believe in anything. That's just not true. What if we were to try to reclaim them? What if we said these words don't belong to a specific brand of Christianity? These words belong to everybody. And what our aim and our goal is in this, not just in this series, but in our church and in our community and in the broader progressive Christian movement is to define these words in ways that are more just and generous. Not that we're making up something that wasn't there, but that as we uncover the layers, we're getting to what has been there all along and we just haven't understood it. Right? God hasn't changed. We have. And as, if we've, as we've changed, we've begun to understand that whatever the word God is pointing to, it's far better than we could ever have imagined. Far more loving, far more compassionate, far more generous far more everywhere than we could have ever possibly imagined. So this summer, last summer, when we were moving, uh, I found a relic in a box. And I don't know, hopefully you can see this. This is a um, vintage, circa 2005, first-generation video iPod. I wanted this more in 2005 than I wanted my next breath. It was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And um, there was a U2 one that I didn't get before it was discontinued, and I'm, st I'm still struggling with that. But um, <laughs> I found this, and I can't even charge it because I don't have a charger that fits it anymore. So it is literally um, a long time ago was, was expensive, and now it's a paperweight. So this iPod, it was really cool because when it came out, this has 30 gigs. And I've been told that's not a lot by today's standards. Um, and what was on here, I can guess, uh, around 2005, there's probably a lot of Rob Bell sermons on here. Um, there's probably a lot of U2 music, um, probably some Fallout Boy, and maybe some Chris Daughtry, I'm not sure. But that, that's the stuff I was listening to at the time. And I found this, and it was in a drawer. At one point, this was on my person 24-7. I would never let it out of my sight. I listened to it all the time, and now it just lives in a drawer. And when I showed it to my oldest just a little bit ago, he was like, what is that? What in the world is that? This was, at the time, I thought, the peak and pinnacle of where technology would take us. It can't get better than an iPod. And then, bam, the iPhone. And when the iPhone came out, next to the iPod, when the iPhone came out, the iPod became 1,000% obsolete. Because the phone could do it, right? The phone has a music feature. The phone has a camera. You don't even need a camera anymore. The phone, but you know what? This iPod, when it was created, it was an innovation on technology that had previously existed. Um, how many of you ever had a disc man, right? You had to be careful how you walked because it would skip. Um, and then before the disc man, what was, it was the walk, 
Walkman, Walkman, Walkman. I don't know exactly the right inflection for that. Walkman, and you put a cassette tape in it, and you would rewind it, and you would fast forward it, and it was just the pinnacle, right? As a kid, I thought, this is amazing. Music is portable. And then they just kept making new things. And I, as I held this in my hand circa 2005 after paying like $350, which might as well have been $3,000 at the time, like I thought this is it. This is the pinnacle of technology. And then they started creating iPhones and they got slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And now this holds like 10,000 songs. This, this holds music on the cloud. It's infinite. Now, if I were to look at these things, would I say that, gosh, the iPod was bad and should never have existed? Actually, the iPod still exists. If we use the language of Richard Rohr, it has been transcended and included. The iPod now is part of the iPhone. It's not a separate device. It's been brought, but it was a necessary step on the way forward to something better and more convenient and more connecting. What if, because I'm saying this because when I went through my unraveling, one of the initial, and this is true, I think, of the grief process, one of the initial emotions I felt was just anger. I was so angry all the time. I was angry that I wasn't told this stuff earlier. I, was, I felt angry because people had sort of snowed me and given me false definitions. And what I now know is that none of that was true. That, that the people who raised me and taught me in the faith were doing the best thing they could. They, they had the iPod and they were doing the best they could do with the iPod. And then came the iPhone and everything changed for me. So what would it look like if we were to say, with this language, Yes, it's been used in some painful ways and it's been used in some toxic ways. That was never the intent of the language. That's what we did with it. But what if we were to see it not as something that needs to be gotten rid of? Like, why do I keep this, right? It's a paperweight, why is it still here? Well, it reminds me of something. And also, I carry it in my pocket every single day everywhere I go because the iPod is now part of that. What if we were to say, the way we've talked about salvation, the way we've talked about sin, the way we've talked about all these words, they were necessary steps on an evolution. The language is always in flux. We're always learning, we're always changing, and we're always growing. So what if we were to approach this series, these words, with sort of an open heart to say, Let, yes, let's talk about the ways they've been misused, but then let's move on from that sort of critique into a vision of what a healing way of seeing and saying would look like. What if we gave ourselves permission to critique it to say this was unhelpful, but yeah, I see how this has led me on a journey to get to where I am and where I'm going today. I'm gonna invite our band to come on back up. Um, and I just wanna take a second here as we wrap up and say that um, I, I know for lots of us, um, this is not just sort of theoretical work, this is the real hard work, because these words have been used in ways that are so painful and so fraught and so difficult. And so I, I just wanna, right where you are, um, I hope you'll feel freedom to, to honor that and to name that. But these, some of these words we're gonna explore over these next several weeks have been used in ways that have just been toxic and it's just been painful. And what would it look like if we were to open ourselves up to the possibility that maybe the way they were used isn't the way they have to be used. Maybe there's a way to see salvation that isn't just pie in the sky getting out of earth. Maybe there's a way to see the concept of sin that doesn't leave us going around calling everybody sinner. Maybe there's a way to think about um, the language of our faith, this ever-evolving influx language that could actually be transformative and healing and life-giving. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that even though we can't be face-to-face -face with our community today, we're still a community. 
And I'm grateful for each one of our Grace Point family who have engaged this morning online with us and for the people who are watching maybe for the very first time. And this morning, we just want to honor and name that, yes, it's, it's true that sometimes the language of our faith has been used in ways that are toxic and demeaning and dehumanizing. And we want, to, we want to name that and we want to say that there is no room for that. But we also want to recognize that the way these words have evolved over time is what they're supposed to do. Their meaning changes as we change, as our understanding of God grows and transforms, as our understanding of other human beings and what it means to be human changes. And so give us what we need for this journey. May this be a time of this series that we're approaching. May it be a time where we disarm these words and, and then give them the healing and generative power that I think they always were intended to have. So grateful for this community. And God, we hold the pain that our world is experiencing right now and acknowledge it. And yet we are Easter people. And so in the depths of who we are, we trust that new creation is coming. And we're grateful for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.